Thanks for liberating that song from its confinement in the so-called Christmas season. That's one of the most beautiful hymns, and it's good to have Christmas in July. One of the most inspiring hymns. I've thought about doing a series of messages on it, especially that phrase, the slave is our brother, because Christ became a slave for us and became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers, sisters, siblings. Romans 11, we're going through all of it today. But first there's an announcement. There's a, there's a group down in Kentucky who stole my initials. It's called the Ark Encounter. That, isn't that what you guys have almost every Sunday and Wednesday, the Ark Encounter? <laughs> my mother said she was going to name me Daniel. In the last second, she changed, and I told her, that's because my initials are supposed to spell Ark. And she didn't even laugh as much as you didn't. And, uh, but all reservations for the Ark Encounter in the Creation Museum, by request of the tour agency, must be in by Tuesday morning. That's July 16th. That's this coming Tuesday. At the latest for the motel reservation. So please see in person Jeff or Joanne Stewart, or their phone numbers are on the information table. And there's room for about 15 more people. Two zebras, two giraffes, and a couple of raccoons, and we'll be all set. But Jeff and Joanne, would you raise your hands? Because there's probably two people that don't know who you are. So raise them high. That's Jeff and Joanne Stewart right there. So Noah and his wife. Thank you for praying for Brian. It looks like he's outgrown his hat phase. And uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding him. Pale Rider Jr. So then, Romans 11, we are continuing in what my friend Mark O'Donnell reminded me is the Targum of Romans. That's exactly what we're doing, a Targum in the tradition of Nehemiah, chapter 8 and verse 8, in which the scriptures are translated and expounded, expanded, and given their sense, the result being understanding, which is our goal in Romans the epistle, and the understanding resulting in joy, sharing, participating in the joy of the dazzling enthronement of the Son of God, who achieved victory for us all, not only over sin, but over death. And we want that to be manifested today. So this is, continues our expanded paraphrase. Now, out at the information table, you're going to have these. We already have them, I think, through Romans 9.26 or maybe even further. And they're also going to be on the website. But bear in mind that even these do not have the final format that they're going to take. I did a lot of innovating here so that an English teacher would probably flunk me, double brackets, bold, bold italic, parentheses inside of brackets instead of brackets inside of parentheses. You English majors are probably having some form of seizure reading this. So this will be fixed up, and it's going to eventually be in the form of an expanded paraphrase, probably around 30 pages long of Romans for your edification. But Romans 11... We'll begin, and what I'm doing here is doing a reading and sometimes inserting some spontaneous comments. But within the reading, I've done a commentary, a brief comment sometimes, introducing chapters or between verses, with the intention of doing no harm and no violence to the flow of the argument, but in fact, clarifying and illuminating Paul's argument after our study of Better Call Paul and Romans, which has taken up a few years of our time, profitable time for sure. So beginning with an introduction to Romans 11. In Romans 11, Paul meets head on the question of Israel's partial sclerosis or hardness and temporary enmity against the gospel of God about his son. He provides a more than satisfactory answer to this question 
Well, on the way, he reproves any notions on the part of Gentile Christians. This has been a problem throughout all of so what's called church history. The arrogant assumption on the part of Gentile Christians that ethnic Israel has been replaced by the so-called church, which happened at that time and now to be more heavily populated by Gentiles. Throughout the epistle, Paul uses a pincer movement, as I did in the exegesis of Romans, or the exposition of it, in which the attack comes from two different sides. And so he uses a pincer movement. From one side, he attacks the bias of Jewish Christians who, under the influence of Paul's opponent, considered ritual circumcision and other tenets of the Jewish law to privilege them over the Gentiles or over the Gentile Christians. From the other side of the pincer, Paul attacks and overwhelms the bias of Gentile Christians, beginning with Romans 11.13, really 11.1, who arrogated to themselves a special status before God under the false assumption that God had abandoned ethnic Israel. So by this pincer strategy, the apostle deftly dismantles a wall of separation between these two groups. In fact, we see that this demolishes walls of separation between all groups in history. By demolishing the bases of their biases, he intends a unity among them. His intention is a unity among a fragmented group of believers, something, again, today profoundly needed God intends a unity. I'll just insert this. We have a lot bigger fish to fry than merely universal salvation. We have a lot bigger fish to fry. And that comes from John 21, but we'll abandon that for now. By demolishing the bases of their biases, he intends a unity among them. The gospel, therefore, proclaimed in its fullness and with its far-reaching, even universal implications, has the power to produce the kind of unity that the psalmist called very blessed and quite pleasant. How blessed and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity, Psalm 133 among those who believe. This kind of loving unity becomes attractive to those so-called on the outside who see not only a loving community, but a community in which eternal life is experienced in some meaningful measure. And this phenomenon of unity of the community in eternal life and love I'll say that again, this phenomenon of unity in the community of eternal life and love in the ongoing clash of the ages is explored in Romans chapters 12 through 16. So we still got, I still got at least a lot of work to do. So Romans 11 begins with this verse, this question, verse one, I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And that's the assumption on the part of some Gentile Christians. And again, I have to insert a comment just because this gives us a proper trajectory. This is the principal question by which Paul addresses a presumption on the part of some Gentile Christians then and throughout history since then, and even now. Just as Romans 6.1, please notice this connection. You'll see it splendidly if you look at it, even in any English translation. Romans 5.20-21, to 21, Paul asks a question in 6.1. Does the superabounding grace of God give a license to sin or give 
a motivation to continue in sin. Paul asks, does it? And then he says, of course not. Romans 11 comes off from Romans 10, 20 to 21. I was found by a people not even looking for me, and all day long I stretched out my hands to a defiant and disobedient people, speaking of Israel. The question is asked in 11.1. By that, can we assume that God has abandoned his people? I would say absolutely not, because the arms outstretched all day long is the arms of the crucified Lord, Jesus Christ, and his love does not give up and will not give up. And so the same strategy is used, 520 to 21, arrow to 61, 1020 to 21, arrow to 111. For those scholars that think that Paul was disjointed in his thinking, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, scholars have said and concluded that Paul was confused, which is, of course, because they do not understand when he's talking and when he's not. If they don't distinguish between Paul's opponent and Paul, then he very much is confused. But if we, we've been trying to unravel this to show the purity of the gospel, every word of God is pure and Jesus is pure. And he that has this hope in him, she that has this hope in her, purifies themselves even as he is pure. See, that's pastoral. I can't help it. And so again, just as in Romans 6, 1, the apostle poses a rhetorical question that demands the answer, of course not. On the basis of a conclusion reached in 520 to 21, so here in 11.1, showing a great continuity here, he poses a rhetorical question based on a conclusion reached in Romans 10.20 to 21. Namely, on the one hand, I, Yahweh, was found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking Isaiah 65, 1, that is the Gentiles. And on the other hand, to Israel, Yahweh says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people, Isaiah 65, 2. So Paul here tackles the seriously mistaken notion that God has somehow abandoned Israel. He does this in a similar rhetorical fashion by which he answered the slanderous accusation that the superabounding grace at the heart of Paul's gospel somehow leads to a continuing in sin. Both are false notions. So he goes on in verse 1 to say, and I reply, most certainly not, for I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. Paul still identified with Israel, ethnic Israel. The point here is, if he can save me, he can save them all. And since he saved me, by a revelation of himself to me on the road to Damascus, not by my repentance or believing or anything else, but by a revelation of himself to me, then all Israel will be saved. Arrow forward, 1126. But let's just read on. I myself, otherwise I'm going to be doing a commentary on Romans like I did, started a couple of years ago. Most certainly not. For I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he previously chose. Or are you unaware of what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah, how he pleads against Israel, like some of you are, he says. He pleads against Israel. He says, Lord, verse 3, Elijah says, they have murdered your prophets. Now, we think about this. That's enough to banish a person into hell, isn't it? I mean, not just murder, but murder of prophets. Not just murder, but murder of the Son of God. How great is God's grace, is my question. They have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. That's in preference for idols. And here it is. 
I myself alone am left remaining. And they're seeking to kill me too. But what was the divine response to him? Paul says in verse 4. God says, I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men. And this is a representation. This is in brackets. This is a representation. The 7,000 is again a representation of the eschatological fullness of Israel or their total salvation and their universal restoration and salvation. Arrow forward, Romans eleven twenty six. My study is like that living being full of eyes in front and behind. We look behind, we look forward, you see unity in Romans. So he says again, but what does the divine response to him? I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men, a representation of Israel's eschatological fullness, who have not bent the knee to Baal. In the same way then, Paul says in verse 5, in the same way then, there is a remnant at the present time. That means a proleptic representation of the eschatological fullness of Israel and their universal restoration and salvation. It begins in Israel. It begins right in the heart of Israel in a crucified Christ. And therefore, the universal restoration begins with the restoration of Israel and fans outward. So those who are on the outskirts, Gentiles, have no reason to boast against Israel where the universal restoration started, rooted in Jesus Christ. That's something that just came as an insight to me even now. So let me continue. You'll have to forgive me when I have present insights. So again... In verse 5, in the same way then, there's a remnant at the present time. That time goes through our present time. Chosen on the basis of unconditional grace. Please notice I say unconditional because to define grace, you have to use the adjective unconditional, as you'll see in a moment. Now, if it is by unconditional grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace which means it would no longer be freely given or unconditional. If some condition had to be met, grace isn't grace. I contend that the condition isn't believing, confessing, repenting, or baptism, or any other thing either. Not just works of the law. That's me. It won't be in print. Verse 7. What then? Another rhetorical question. Israel did not find what it was looking for. We already saw that in Romans 9.31, arrow backward, eyes backward. But the elect, that is the elect among Israel, did find it. The rest were hardened. Just as it stands written, verse 8, God, please notice the subject of this sentence, God has given them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that do not see. Who gave it to them? God. Eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear even to this day. You can relate that to 2 Corinthians 3.14 if you want to. That's a profitable study. Moreover, on top of that, David says... trying to figure out is this David Bradshaw oh hi Dave no it's King David of Israel I forgot okay David says let their table become a snare and a net and a trap and a means of punishment to them let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be continually bent over not eternally but continually Psalm 69, 22 to 23, Septuagint, Psalm 68, 23 to 24. Here's the comment. It is vital to understand that it was God who gave a large segment of Israel a spirit of stupor and eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear even to this day. 
In fact, this Psalm 69, 23 agrees with Isaiah 60, or rather Isaiah 6, make that, 6, 10. That verse gets some heavy play throughout the New Testament, which says, he has blinded their eyes. God has. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see, as he, again, in John 6, 10. In, this is quoted in a remarkable way in John 12, 39 to 40, in which John says, and we've already hit this once, that the leaders and many of the people in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, quote, were unable to believe as a result of this action of God. As a result of the action of God, they were unable to believe And this is one of those unfathomable judgments of God. Eyes forward to Romans 11.33. We'll get there. One of those unfathomable. Why would you judge, make a judgment by which Israel would be blinded and not see and unable to believe? One of the answers to that is because I don't save people by their belief. And I don't damn people by their unbelief. I save all by my mercy. And so this is one of the. How unfathomable are his judgments? This explains the very puzzling riddle of what what Isaiah 6.10 says when he prevents their conversion. Why? Eyes forward to 11.30 to 32. He's imprisoning them in unbelief so that he can have mercy on all because he saves us according to his mercy. It is not of him that runs or him that wills, even wills to believe, but it is God who shows mercy. He's at the base of this whole thing. All right. Only God can illuminate these things. I can only go so far in trying to clarify. He rendered Israel incapable of believing except for a remnant, so that in his own time, he would be merciful to them as he was with the Gentiles who weren't even looking for him. All of this is on a trajectory, a trajectory, an arrow toward God's plan to show mercy to all. Romans 11.32 is indeed climactic in this Romans epistle. So I, Paul, verse 11, begins a new paragraph of this argument. So I, Paul, say, they have not tripped. Remember the tripping stone? Romans 9.33, I have laid in Zion a stone for tripping. So you could rightly say to the majority of Israel at that time, are you tripping? You're tripping. But they have not tripped. Somebody says, okay, Israel tripped over that tripping stone, so that means God's forsaken them. That's, see, that's the idea in the Gentiles, Christians' heads. Some of them, not all by any means. So I, Paul, say they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Of course not. Another rhetorical question demanding the emphatic negative. Of course not. Meganoito. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation, (laughs) by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke Israel to jealousy. That's a manner of speaking going back to Romans 10.20, which goes back to Isaiah 65.1. But if their misstep is bringing riches to their world, to the world, and their defeat, ultimately this is A.D. 70, riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? 
He anticipates a fullness which is a totality of all Israel in all of its times. That's our wonderful word, pleroma. Pleroma. And that looks like this if you were to put it in English letters. The long O, the long E. Pleroma. That means a totality. And that means a totality of all of ethnic Israel in all of its times in history. If their misstep and transgression means salvation for the world outside, how much more will their projected and prophesied totality mean? Not only for them, but for the whole world. It's an unspeakable, dazzling, glorious transfiguration of all of creation, which begins with the Jew first. Romans 1.16. So the Gentiles ought to curb their enthusiasm. Even Larry David would tell him to do that. I know. Before I go far off the rails, tumble down the cliff, let's continue. So, verse 12. If their misstep, rejection of the gospel, is bringing riches to the world and their defeat, riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring them? But now I'm speaking to you Gentile Christians. Remember, in Romans 7, 1, he said, I'm speaking to those of you who know the law. And so he reproves this idea that those who know the law are somehow superior to those Gentiles. Now he's talking to the Gentiles. See the pincer movement who think that they're special because God's abandoned Israel to graft them in. Both terribly Wrong assumptions. In fact, even a further distortion of this assumption gets into areas like Nazism, where Israel is abandoned by God, so let's do do God's work and further eradicate them. That's the thinking. See, if you misread the scriptures, sometimes there's powerful results. The misreading of the scriptures by Augustine in the 4th century caused hundreds of millions of Christians to labor under the fear of eternal damnation for centuries. You think that the gospel's pulling down strongholds today? Ha. Huh. It is. So, let's continue. I'm speaking now to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul knew that he was called. He had an awareness of his mission as apostle to the Gentiles, emissary of God to the Gentiles. The fruit of that was churches like Ephesians, the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and other places, Corinthians. So, I... In view of the fact that I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, I'm expanding the horizon of my ministry. He said, I'm expanding the horizon of my ministry. That is, I'm going outside of the normal trend, and I'm speaking also to my Jewish brethren here. Because he knows that preaching to the Gentiles will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 65, 1, that that would provoke Israel to jealousy. Hey, we've been trying to find this joy, this peace, this righteousness, this happiness in God all these centuries by the law, and it hasn't worked. These people get it free. We're jealous. That's kind of the idea here. So in view of the fact that I'm an apostle or emissary, envoy to the Gentiles, I'm expanding the horizon of my ministry, verse 14, with the intent that by doing so, I may provoke my flesh. And he uses that in a very unique way. In a, I don't say very unique, unique, in a unique way. He's speaking of my flesh being my fellow Israelites by hereditary heritage. In Romans 9, 3, eyes back, Paul's brothers, his countrymen and women by physical descent. He wished to be cursed if they would be joined to Christ in this age. Of course, you can't be cursed if Christ was already made a curse. 
So, again, let's look at it again. With the intent that by doing so, verse 14, I might provoke my flesh to jealousy. In other words, God's using me to actually, in my mission, fulfill his prophecy in Isaiah 65, 1. By preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and by the Gentiles flooding in, I can excite jealousy in my countrymen after the flesh. That's his intent, to jealousy, and thus be an instrument of Yahweh in provoking their jealousy and save some of them, save some of them as a result. That is, in other words, so that some of them can awaken to this salvation even now before the universal revelation to them in resurrection in which they'll all be saved. Thus, some will be saved and awaken to this salvation even now before the eschatological moment when every eye will see him. If you ever want an exciting thing, my sister Becky sends this of Jewish converts or Muslim converts. You can Google it. Just say Jewish convert, Muslim convert. You'll be amazed at the testimony of God's awakening of many of the Jewish people after the flesh. And most recently, a famous author whose book became a movie. He was in there also. And also the Muslim testimonies, there is apparently thousands of Muslims who are having dreams in which Jesus Christ appears to them. And this is not, you're not going to read that, hear that in Fox or CNN or MSNBC or PMSNBC or whatever these other stations are called, uh, facetiously or otherwise. So then, this is good news from God. Verse 15, for you see, if their rejection, that goes both ways. It seems that God has temporarily set them aside, but their rejection also means their rejection of Jesus Christ. Remember, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Their rejection, it says, if you see, for you see, if their rejection means what? The reconciliation of the world. Why? Well, there's many reasons. They rejected Christ. They demanded his crucifixion. The Romans crucified him under Pontius Pilate. The result of that crucifixion was what? God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. The world to himself. World reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? He prophesies a future acceptance by the totality of Israel. When? When every knee bows and every tongue acknowledges and pledges allegiance to Yahweh. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11. As they see the dazzling enthronement of the Son of God, there is no other response. Possible. And you see that in some measure already. If I may take another aside, you see that already. For you have been raised together with Christ. So set your minds not on things on the earth, but above where Christ is seated enthroned in dazzling splendor, having attained victory over sin and death and all forms of oppression. All right, back to our text. For you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. That means all Israel will demonstrate a total acceptance and a full acceptance of the gospel, even as some are even now. The totality will then, when life from the dead occurs, which is called bodily resurrection. Verse 16, for if the first fruits offered up are holy, Paul refers to the offerings of the Old Testament, so is the whole batch of dough. This is all appealing to the remnant. The remnant set aside, so is the whole. The remnant is a representation of the totality. 
not just a remnant that he'll save and the hell with the rest. That's exactly what is not being taught here. So in doing toppling some of these misunderstandings, you know what we're doing, don't you? We're pulling down strongholds that have existed in the Protestant and the Catholic branches of the so-called church. We're pulling down replacement theology. We're pulling down a whole lot of walls with the intent not of separating, but unifying Christians. That's my intent, even though it doesn't seem that way a lot of times. Verse 16, for if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, speaking here of the olive tree, so are the branches. Okay, I take time for commentary here. The first fruits and the root, those two things from 16, are illuminating of the fact that the remnant stands as a prolepsis of universal election by grace because the root look at revelation 22:16 sometime the root look at revelation 22:16 sometime the last self identification of jesus in the bible the root and the first fruits look at 1 corinthians 15:20 and 23 sometime. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23 sometime. The root and the first fruits ultimately is Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Who began this universal restoration already in and with Israel especially with 12 disciples whom he chose and ordained and whom he prophesied would be, quote, enthroned on 12 thrones in the universal regeneration. In other words, the universal restoration is a fanning out of the restoration of Israel. So nobody on the outside of Israel ever better look back or look at Israel today, unsaved Jews, as we might call them, and look at them with disdain and say God has abandoned them. That's arrogance. And you might think you're living a spiritual life holding on to that. You aren't. So, the reconciliation of the world ultimately occurred at the cross, which was the fruit of Israel's rejection. Seems like we heard somewhere else that by the law of the cross, God transforms evil into the supreme good. But that's instauration. That's coming. By, by that I mean it's coming as a doctrine. So Paul transfers this idea, world reconciliation through Christ, to Israel's historical rejection, which was and is an analog to Jesus Christ's rejection. When he became sin for us all, which was inexorably followed by his stunning vindication and dazzling exaltation, which is justification for us all, as well as the glorification of us all. Two arrows back, 518, 830. He justified all, and all that he justifies are glorified. Therefore, he glorifies all. Read it to yourself, Romans 5.18, and pair it with, not parrot, pair it with Romans 8.30. He justifies all of humanity, and all whom he justifies, he glorifies. Therefore, he glorifies all humanity in his glorious Son. Those two verses alone should start an explosion, series and chain reaction explosions in your brain to transform your thinking and cause you to do this very strange thing. Love with God's love, not your own.
So, continuing my commentary, that was just the pastoral spouting. Israel, as well as all of humanity and all of creation, is to be included in this glorious victory. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 7.25, 1 Corinthians 15.57. Election, as a doctrine and a theme and a motif, is grounded in Jesus Christ, the elect one. Isaiah 42.6, Luke 9.35, Luke 23.35. 35, 1 Peter 4, 2.4, 4, 1 Peter 1.20, you name it. He's the elect one. So election is grounded in Jesus Christ, the elect one, the crucified Christ who was rejected, and the risen Christ who demonstrates God's universal acceptance of all humanity in him. So all of humanity is elect in him in whom they will be made alive in 1 Corinthians 15.22. He whom God made to be sin for us is the very same person whom God made to be righteousness for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, backtrack to 1 Corinthians 1.30, confer with Jeremiah 23.6, and therefore all of us, and I'm glad we went to John first, all of us have permanently profited from Jesus' pleroma, Jesus' had a play Roma in John 1.16. We have all profited from his play Roma, meaning we are all elected derivatively in him. This is the gospel. Hidden from the eyes of those Christians who just refuse to believe. But even they have eyes that cannot see for now. So that when they open them, they're going to be all the more happy. Romans eleven seventeen. Let's continue with the text. But if some branches were broken off. Now you see Paul moves from metaphor to metaphor. Broken off branches is the same entity as the hardened part of Israel. The hardened part of Israel is the broken off branches of the olive tree. Two metaphors, same entity. And you Gentile Christians, though a wild olive tree and not cultivated by the vineyard owner like the father, not cultivated, but a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and have become a participant in the richness of the root of the cultivated olive tree. Verse 18, here's where he hits the heart. Do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant toward the branches that is enthusiastically triumphing over them as if you're better than they are. If you are boasting, second half of 1118, if you by chance are boasting, You should instead bear in mind that you aren't sustaining the root, but the root is sustaining you. Consequently, your enthusiasm is misplaced. Just like, I'll add this as a pastoral spontaneous quip, the majority of Christian enthusiasm today is misread as spirit excitement. And it's just enthusiasm about one's own self-righteousness and self-importance. Ow. Gosh, that even hurt me. Now, so you, verse 19 who choose to keep boasting, will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. Paul said, you're half right. Rightly said, they were broken off because of unbelief, which God imposed upon them. (laughs) And you are caused to stand. 
the passive voice of grace is you. You are caused to stand. That means you are caused to stay in place as grafted in branches by the faithfulness of Christ. This isn't by your faith. It's by the faithfulness of Christ in which you participate because by an act of God, faith was elicited in you. He's saying you're not special. But he's couching it in a lot of whole doctrine. See, when you can get a stinging rebuke, but it's within amazing context of grace. You say, the righteous will smite me, and it's a kindness. So, listen to this. Bracketed commentary. You may think you stand because of your faith. But in reality, you are standing in God's grace, courtesy of the fidelity and faithfulness of Jesus. This is the grace in which we stand, arrow back, Romans 5, 2, arrow back, six fourteen under grace. So do not be haughty, but afraid, or reverently respectful. This is where I did that series, you better curb your enthusiasm. 4, verse 21. As you are thinking, listen carefully, as you are thinking, he changes that thinking. The only thing that will change that kind of thinking is the knowledge of the mystery coming up in 25. And then again in Romans 16, 25 and 26. For as you are thinking, God did not spare the natural branches. Then under that thinking, he will not spare you either. See, the whole idea is Israel was cut off because of something bad they did. But we were cut, brought in because of something good we did. And so Paul's saying, according to your thinking, if God abandoned Israel for something bad they did, if you do something bad, he's going to cut you off too. Don't you see? That's not a really good way to think. The biggest cure, this is again my comment, and don't quote me on it, but I think one of the biggest cures for the Christian who swears they'll never sin is sinning. And then, of course, appropriating the grace of God and forgiveness. I'll, I, I love this one. I could never do that. Without using names... Personal testimony, um, back in the 69 to 70 days in college, many people smoked marijuana illegally. And you'd go back home, and you'd hear people in the hometown saying, I could never do that, nor would I ever do that. And then by 1972, they're the biggest potheads that ever lived on the earth. And so, that happened. That actually happened. Back to serious matters here. Verse 23, or 21. For if, as you're thinking, God didn't spare the natural branches, then he certainly will not spare you either. Now, the word spare is phytomai, And the real issue is that God did not spare his own son. Arrow back. Romans 8.32. But freely handed him over. Not the pagans over to wrath. But his son over to take away sin. Expiation. So this word spare is used sparingly. But it's used precisely in Romans 8.32, where God did not spare his own son on Mount Calvary as he spared Abraham's son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. He freely handed Jesus over for us all, for us all, for us all, all, all. Romans 8.32. So here's another example or sample of continuity between Romans 5 through 8 
and 9 through 11. 9 through 11 isn't some bracketed slot that Paul stuck in Romans. It's perfect continuity with the rest of the epistle. Paul isn't confused. Paul isn't incoherent. He presents the most clear, concise, awesome presentation of the gospel with its universal implications as any other document in all of history. Romans does it. 22, take a good look then, Paul says, at the kindness, and listen carefully to this, and what you call the harshness of God. Harshness to those who fell. Another word here, pipto. I'm going to leave pleroma up here, but pipto is another word used here, P-I-P-T-O. And that's exactly the kind of permanent fall that Israel did not do. Israel didn't fall permanently. Pipto, did they? Romans 11, 11, arrow back. And even when the word pipto is used, as in Romans 14, 4, arrow forward, the Lord is able to make the one who falls to stand. If a man falls, if a woman falls... And today you see it in the news all the time. If someone fell in some moral area in their distant past, they're done in the eyes of the public. The public have judged them. They're done. They're finished. It's over. There's no possibility of forgiveness or restoration to their former status. It's done. You're done. The world in public opinion is the harshest judge. But when a person stands or falls, the Bible says the Lord is able to make them stand the world knows nothing of a thing called repentance that God effects in someone transformation that God effects in someone and so they are unforgiving as all hell and this is a, a trend happening not only in my generation and the older generations but it's even more virulent in the younger generations of politicians coming up. Dangerous, more than you know. So, back to commentary. Take a good look then at the kindness and what you call the harshness of God, harshness on those who fell, and kindness toward you. If you remain in his kindness, to your way of thinking, you got to remain. you got to continue. you got to continue. And that's what they say today. You not only have to believe and be saved, but you better continue believing because you can lose your salvation somewhere along the line. Really? Boy, am I restraining myself. I wouldn't dare call that preacher an arrogant bastard I wouldn't dare so I'm holding back on that I'm not doing that I'm not going to do it take a good look then at the kindness and what you call the harshness of God to those who fell and kindness toward you if you remain in his kindness otherwise by your way of thinking you like them will be cut off If you think by continuing, God will remain faithful to you, then you better watch out because you may not be faithful to him and he will cut you off just like those people he cut off in your view, the Jews. You're standing on some tenuous ground here. Verse 23, furthermore, even by your way of thinking, let's grant your way of thinking. If they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. I love that. In other words, God who disallowed their belief can cause them to be faithful. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will take out the stony heart among them and put in a heart of flesh. I will cause them to walk in my ordinances, especially love God and love one another. I will make them do it. I'll put my spirit in them and cause them to do it. He will do it. For you see, verse 24, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree. In other words, the very fact that you're in 
the cultivated tree called Israel, demands that you were first cut off from a wild olive tree, the pagans, the Gentiles. So, you see, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, how much more will these, that's the natural branches that were broken off, be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, by comparison to your unnatural grafting, it would be an ordinary act of God to regraft the broken off branches in that tree. It's an extraordinary act that you guys got grafted in. Be an ordinary thing to God to graft his own people back in, which he will do. Verse 25, my siblings. Now see, Paul turns from what was apparently harsh, apparently, seemingly tough love. But now he shows his real heart as an apostle. Paul's heart is as tender as they come, as motherly as they come. We, like a nursing mother, were toward you, caring for your souls, he says. My siblings, now Paul, who had been seemingly severe, now becomes kind and tender in his appeal, which he really was all along. I've said all of this because I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, And so that you would not be sensible only in yourselves. That is, I don't want you to be restricted to mere common sense, which is a limiting norm in your group. That hardness has come about in part of Israel. This is a revealed secret now. Only until the totality, there it is again, pleroma, the totality of Israel here. Or the totality now is of the Gentiles. Listen carefully again, 25. I've said all this because I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you would not be sensible only in yourselves. That hardness has come about in part of Israel only until the totality of the Gentiles comes in. Mathematics, add pleroma of Israel, as we saw it before, the fullness of Israel, with the fullness of the Gentiles, the totality of the Gentiles, and you get the totality of humanity. That's biblical math. One plus one equals two. Or one plus one equals infinity in this case. So then, as it says, when the fullness of the Gentiles, the totality of the Gentiles comes in, means enters the kingdom of God, the Israel of God, the king. And without further ado, all Israel will be saved. Now that means, and we're ready to close soon, all of Israel will be saved within the horizon of all humanity being saved. And all of humanity is saved within the horizon of all creation being finally redeemed from its slavery to corruption. Romans eight nineteen to 23. This is a universal renewal that begins in Israel, in the Jew first, Romans 1.16. All of creation and all of humanity and all of its times are waiting for the consummation of the creation that is the result of God's acts of calling all things into existence in Christ by raising him from the dead and with him all of creation. Creation once without form and void. In the telos, T-E-L-O-S, When all creation will have been subjected to Jesus, God's son, then the son himself will subject all of the redeemed creation to God so that God will be all in all. Verse 26, therefore, as it is written, and this is the 11th of 14 uses of kathos gegraptai, as it is written. Paul uses it 14 times. That's two times seven. The witness of perfection, 14 Fourteen times he uses this term, kathos gegreptai, meaning that Paul is not a covenant theologian. Paul is not a dispensational theologian. Paul is what I want to be, a scriptural theologian. So then, from Zion the rescuer, who's the rescuer? None other than the stone that God laid in Zion and the rock of offense, Jesus the crucified and resurrected from the dead. Arrow back, Romans 9.33. This same stone, the same rock of offense, the same crucified Christ will come 
It says, he will remove ungodliness, the Adamic ontology altogether from Jacob, Isaiah 59, 20. Indeed, this is when I fulfill my covenant with them, says Yahweh. That is, when I take away their sins, already done by the Lamb, manifested in the future in the parousia, Isaiah 59, 21. As for the gospel... This really hits it hard right here. As for the gospel, the hardened part of Israel, or the broken off branches, he's speaking of the olive tree, are enemies, enemies of the gospel for your sake, Gentiles. But as for the election, which we've already said is all in Christ, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. Why? Because the patriarchs, represent and include them proleptically, just like the root and the first fruits. They have the patriarchs. And verse 29, conclusion, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That hasn't got to do with you as an individual. That has to do with God's gifts and calling of Israel. Thank God it's irrevocable because his universal restoration begins in Israel on a hill outside Jerusalem called Skull Hill. And then out from there, take in everything. That's instauration. So, here it is. Climax. Verse 30. As you, Gentile Christians, once disobeyed, That is, as pagan unbelievers. But now you have received what? Mercy. Huh. Mercy. What kind of mercy? Saving mercy. According to his mercy, he saved us. Titus 3.5. Hmm. I just channeled Pastor Brown again. Hmm. So they, verse 31 the hardened part of Israel whom you Gentile Christians see reflected in your Jewish Christian siblings, sadly. They also have now disobeyed. They've disbelieved. They've become unfaithful. So that the same mercy given to you, they will also receive. Down comes the walls. Out goes the biases because the basis of the biases just got ruined. So, I love it. Verse 32, for God has shut up all human beings in disobedience and unbelief in order to have mercy on them all. Isn't it beautiful in context coming up to it this way? Isn't it beautiful? This mercy is salvific. It means salvation. As Titus 3.5 says, 3.5 to 7a, faith isn't mentioned at all. It is not by righteous works which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, which he poured out plentifully on us by the Holy Spirit. By grace you are justified. Nothing about faith. Grace, unconditional. Mercy. God saved us according to his mercy. Now, I have a long commentary. I may omit it here. I should omit it. I don't want to do this to you. The ultimate plan of God to show his saving mercy to all then occasions this stunning doxology or hymn of praise to God. Oh, the depth of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his judgments. That includes his judgment to imprison all in unbelief in order to have saving mercy on all. How unfathomable. And how incomprehensible his ways of acting. How incomprehensible is it that God would act in his son's death to bring about universal restoration? How incomprehensible that God was in Christ, the crucified man, reconciling the world to himself, his ways of acting. 
He comes to people that don't ask for him. He's coming to people now that never seek him. He's coming to militant atheists and Muslims. He's coming to Buddhists and he's coming to Hindus. And he's coming to those who hate God and everything about God. And he's revealing himself to them. His ways of acting defy our expectations. So how incomprehensible are his ways of acting? Like reconciling the world to himself by means of the death of his son in Romans 5.10. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who could ever lay out a blueprint for him and say, you ought to do it this way? Who has ever become his advisor? Who has ever first given to him? And has to be repaid. I've given you my life. You have to repay me with salvation. I've given you my sorrow for sins. You have to repay me with salvation. I've given you my repentance. You have to repay me with salvation. Who's ever done that? Nobody. They only think they've done that. Who has ever given to him and has to be repaid? For from him as creator. And through him as redeemer. And to him are all of the beings of the entire universe of proportionate being in all of its times in a universal return. To him be the glory for all the ages. Amen. Go in peace and stay in love.